Hello, everybody, and welcome back to episode 10 of Daffy's Roundtable. My guest for today is a world-renowned vertebrate paleontologist and evolutionary development biologist. I probably said that wrong. Uh, she is currently a professor at Carleton University and happens to be the professor I did my final project with there. I'm super excited for this uh, episode, so without wasting any more time, please let me introduce my guest, Dr. Hilary Madden. Hello. Hey, how's it going? Good, how are you? Thank you for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm very excited. I don't think we've talked about amphibians in depth this much till till now, or hopefully till now. Perhaps, perhaps. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, awesome. Um, so to start things off, um, can you tell us a little bit how you got to where you are now? Um, the kind of research you're doing, that kind of stuff? Sure. I mean, it's always a long story because I'm one of those kids that have always wanted to be a paleontologist. So okay. my journey starts when I was probably about four or five, <laughs> but we I'll skip Even ahead better. a few years. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, yeah, no, I was always one of those kids that loved dinosaurs. Uh, you know, Jurassic Park was awesome. I was probably about 12 or 13 when it came out. So I was like, oh, my career is like real. I can do it. Um, went to university knowing exactly what I wanted to do, be a paleontologist. So was a terrible student until about third or fourth year when that, <laughs> that was when I knew it had to be uh, time to sort of step it up to get into grad school. Um, along the way, I kind of lost the love for dinosaurs. I think that was probably due to the fact that uh, University of Toronto, Mississauga, where I was, the paleontologist on faculty there did not study dinosaurs at the time. So studied instead Permian vertebrates. So animals that were living about 280 million years ago or so. And this was actually really quite cool because it was like a whole other environment, a whole other scene of animals before uh, dinosaurs even show up in the fossil record. So kind of fell in love with that wow. time period. And it's around there where we start to see the earliest reptiles, the earliest members of the mammal line, and our earliest sort of amphibians as we start to recognize them today. So I kind of became captivated by amphibians. I think their fossil record is super fascinating. Um, in the past, they looked nothing like today. They were pretty large, fairly terrestrial sort of reptile looking animals. And over the evolutionary history became uh, quite small and diminutive like the ones that we recognize today. So I kind of thought this transformation seemed to be really cool. Um, event in our the evolutionary history of vertebrates and so that's basically what I studied now today. That's really awesome. I actually had a few questions about the the size change and whether they actually were um, th th much larger back then because there is still the Chinese um, uh, giant salamanders I think they're called. Are, yeah. are they really as big as people? I've never seen one. Are they really as big as people say and are they considered the oldest existing amphibian then because of their size? Does that make sense? <laughs> Yeah, it makes sense. I know what you're. I know what you're getting at. Yeah, so they 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 are very large. So they have them on exhibit. I think at the Prague uh, Zoo, and I got to see some cool. of them, which were like incredible. So they're like three, four feet long, um, and they're about, just yeah. like exactly a flashback to what we think that some of the you know the Permian and um, age sort of amphibians probably would have looked like body size wise. Um, but of course, awesome. like the anatomy is completely different inside the animal. So. Um, yeah, in terms of where they sort of reside in the family tree of amphibians or of salamanders, those animals are close to the base, but I don't think that that necessarily means the ancestral or most primitive salamander was large because another very closely related primitive group is very small. So I think that the body size growth was probably something that happened in the, the lineage that's alive today. Okay, very cool. Okay. 
Um, all right, so we'll get back to the to to all the the lineage and the timeline later on. Um, just a little bit more about uh, about like what you're doing currently with your research at Carleton. I know you're working with a lot of like axolotls and xenophis. Um, maybe mm -hmm. briefly break down what what kind of research or what the research is looking for. I guess. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what we're doing is we do kind of like two lines of investigation in my lab. So, you know, half of us are kind of working on building sort of the patterns of evolutionary change based on the fossils. So we, you know, we're working on the earliest relatives of a lot of these lineages, trying to trace out what they look like and what those family trees of these animals look like. So we can actually start to see how the shapes and the anatomy has changed over time. Uh, and then when we kind of look at those patterns, we wonder, well, how did those changes come to be? What happened in the evolutionary history of those animals that sort of resulted in those changes that we see? And that's where we use uh, the animals axolotl and xenopus uh, to basically start to sort of test some of those predictions or hypotheses that we have. So does did the expression of this one particular gene change in development such that it gave rise to a different kind of anatomy or morphology in an animal? Um, that we can basically manipulate today. And then, as a, in a sense, we're kind of seeing if we can replicate any of these transitional fossil forms um, in the lab. That's very cool. And when you say manipulate, you mean actually manipulate the gene to do something else? Correct. Yeah. So there's, you know, some of our earlier studies, um, uh, we were sort of basically exposing embryos to chemical agents that are, have known uh, effects on the genetics of particular genes uh, that we were interested in looking at. So we basically just drop the embryo in a little chemical treatment, uh, take it out after it's done and let it grow and see what happens. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, that's very cool. And then is that, would you consider that the most exciting part of your job or is there something that's even more exciting than seeing the changes after a couple of months or, or, or it's pretty close. It's pretty close to being like the most exciting part, you know, just sort of confirming that, yes, in fact, our predictions that came from rocks that were 300 million years old kind of came true in our hands. So, I mean, of course, it's also super exciting to discover new fossils in the field. Um, so that's kind of where we have our aha and yippee moments over in, in, in fossil land. Um, but yeah, if we can get an experiment to kind of confirm what we were thinking and, and thought, what we thought was happening, that's pretty awesome. And you could probably attest to the screams of joy in the lab that have happened a few times. <laughs> I definitely can. I've, I've been some of the screams of joy. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> exactly. yeah, no, awesome. Um, okay, and then about the finding fossils. So um, when you go out, you're, are you mostly looking for amphibian fossils as well? I know I've seen you bring in like uh, gigantic tree stumps. Uh, are you looking for fossils within the tree stumps or is that just a completely other project? Yeah, no, that's exactly it. So um, we're we're looking for fossils in the Carboniferous era um, period. So basically, where we know a bunch of these early reptiles and amphibians are evolving. Um, but so when we go out, we basically just find whatever we find. So we're you know I've been hoping to find a nice clear record of amphibians, but as a result, we do also find a lot of reptiles and, and other kinds of fossils too, which are super cool as well anyways. Um, and just just what's special about Nova Scotia where we collect um, you know and all that material goes back to Nova Scotia of course. but uh, where we're collecting there, the way that fossils are preserved um, there is quite unique. So Nova Scotia is one of the only places where we can find vertebrate fossils of the Carboniferous age. 
Um, and we find most of them inside those tree stumps that you've seen in the lab. And they're trees as in they're basically tree-like plants, but they're not related to trees like today. So they're basically okay. more closely related to club mosses, very small plants that are alive today. But in the Carboniferous, these were 10, 20, 30 meter high tree-like plants. But also because they're club mosses, they didn't have like a woody core. So when the plant died, it basically sort of snapped off, hollowed out, had a sort of a bark-like cylinder, and that would have been basically just an open manhole in the Carboniferous. So either things were living inside of there, got trapped and buried and preserved, or things got washed in and henceforth still got trapped and preserved. So uh, we find most of the fossils, because they are so tiny and delicate, inside those, those tree stumps. They kind of were protected as a result. Yeah. It kind of preserved better be than... Uh, other in other areas yeah these things are tiny i mean you've seen some of the fossils in the lab their jaws right. can be you know millimeters um you know some of them are bigger we're finding bigger and bigger animals but oh, a like lot a of these oh yeah a lot of these earliest reptiles are you know maybe 10 15 centimeters so it's only because of that really cool preservation that we have them at all probably that's a chance so is that why um the, in, the you do your field work in, in nova scotia is is there um any other reason that's that makes that uh, have a that. Like what's the significance of the Joggins Cliffs at Nova Scotia? <laughs> yeah, the significance is basically that, yes, it's one of the only places on the globe that preserves vertebrate and um, tetrapod fossils of that age. And it's actually the oldest of those localities that um, preserves basically the first amniote, so egg laying vertebrate which is also happens to be a reptile. So it's the first reptile as well. And it also oh, yes. has the earliest record of a synapsid, which is the, um, the animals that go on to become mammals. Very interesting. And now that Amnio, you did, uh, you released a paper on um, the first parental care in them, correct? Yeah. 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 So, so those fossils were also found at, at Nova Scotia. They were, they were found on Cape Breton. Yeah. Yeah. So slightly younger rocks, so not quite as old as Joggins. Um, so, okay. you know, if we had found that at Joggins, it would have been like a Incredible. much, you know, even earlier than we expected to see parental care. But um, as a result, still in New Brunswick or in um, on Cape Breton, it was still about 40 million years earlier than the previous record of, of any kind of parental care behavior. So that's the earliest that we now know of um, in parental care behavior and just reptiles or in... Um, it seems to be places. in, you know, we were trying to find other occurrences and records. It seems to be the earliest record for at least for amniotes, uh, but it quite possibly for all tetrapods as well. So um, very cool. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's yeah, very, very cool. Um, awesome. Okay. And then back to the axolotls and xenopus. Mm -hmm. Why do you use them as the like model animals in your lab? Right. So we're using them right now as sort of like a starting point, just because, you know, my lab's not too old. You know, we, we you know, we set up about six years ago. And so they were currently known as model organisms. So there's a lot of knowledge uh, behind them, a lot of the molecular techniques. Like so they're, you know, the genetics have been really well worked out for at least for Xenopus. The axolotl genome came out just a couple of years ago. Um, they just have a lot of research behind them already. So starting out, it would have been the easiest to kind of jump into those systems. They aren't necessarily the best model organisms for the kind of research we do, um, which is sort of the evolutionary um, research, 
because as you can imagine, if you think of an axolotl, it's not a very typical salamander at all. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, when, you know, model organisms are sort of um, boasted, sort of put as that status because they tend to be thought of as representing all salamanders. However, right, axolotls, yeah, are not very good at doing that exactly. So we're actually in the process now of expanding our, our study organisms to include things like plethodon, the little redback salamanders from around here. Um, cool. They do something very different from axolotls. They developed terrestrially. There is no larval stage. So they actually might be right. better models for some of the earlier amphibians, which didn't have larvae. So, um, okay. you know, we're starting to expand those tools into those animals. So the earlier amphibians didn't, um, they didn't have larvae stage. They didn't lay their eggs in water. They were first terrestrial and then they started kind of going back and forth. There's a lot of, um, I mean, as you can imagine, the fossil record trying to find little squishy larvae is really challenging. Um, but it seems that um, amphibian-like metamorphosis is something that may have happened quite a bit closer to the origin of amphibians. You know, other fossil groups of amphibians have their own kinds of metamorphosis and, and uh, sort of larval stages. But um, it's sort of thought that our modern amphibians sort of created this process as a as a way of dealing with interesting habitats um, so we're not really too sure i don't you know they would have laid eggs in water at least because the amniotic egg doesn't appear to right. later but whether they had sort of like a very distinctive larval phase like modern amphibians is still i think a little bit unclear okay very interesting and then would you consider expanding past the salamanders into more terrestrial frogs and cecilians uh, for example or <laughs> 100% yeah so we're yeah. we're working on bringing um uh, a frog erythrodactylus erythrodactylus koki the little puerto oh, rican yeah so we want to yeah. have those guys in the lab as well cuz they're also direct developers so they have no tadpole phase um, interesting and as well bombina is you know the firebelly toad great frog yeah. that's easy again to keep in the lab and is not as wacky as something like Xenopus. Do you have Bombina? <laughs> I have three of them. Do you want them? Ah, are they? Do you know if they're male or female? <laughs> I don't. They're very young still. Ah, okay. Yeah, we'll keep so, posted on that because uh, if we yeah. can get them breeding. I know there's protocols sure. for injecting them for breeding like uh, Xenopus. So. Okay, cool. I yeah, yeah, I had no idea. I just like they happened to 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 come into my care, and I was like, they're cool, but I I'm not really like they're too young to be breeding or working with them yet. So gotcha. I'm just yeah. living here. Yeah. Yeah, uh, no, cool. I worked with them a bit in my former lab. I, they're really cute. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, they are. I do. I, have you ever worked with uh, Spanish rib newts? No. What's the genus name? Uh, Plurodellus waltum. Okay. No, I, yeah, but I was wondering if it was Plurodellus. Yeah, because I know there yeah. is a bit a big community of um, developmental biologists who do work with that with that genus. So, but no, I think they're, they're beautiful, but, um, no, I've never, they're very cool. Them. And, yeah. and my female is dropping eggs like crazy. So if you, if you want to <laughs> <laughs> let me know. Yeah. So cool. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'd love to take Sicilians in the lab too, at some point. Uh, I've had them in the lab before. Um, but of course, again, like being so enigmatic and cryptic, like there are not really well worked out protocols for even attempting to a, keep them for long periods of time and breeding them is, you know, unimaginable. Is, is very rare. Is very rare. I think okay. there's a few success stories around the world of people breeding them. Uh, I'd love to hear more. I'd love to have somebody, a contact that breeds ichthyophis, any of the primitive ones, any of the arena traumatids. Ichthyophis? 
Ichthyophis. Yeah, this one shows up on the pet trade fairly often. I um, think. Let me look that up. Um, with the yellow band down the side, usually. I think there is a. Oh yeah, I think there might be somebody called um, Nick Stacy in the states that's working with them. I will reach out to him and see if if there's a possibility or if yeah, he has babies yet or anything. Yeah. Yeah. Super cool. Yeah, Tiflonectes cool. okay. shows up on the pet trade a lot, but they're again like a they're a viviparous species, so they give birth to live young. Um, but okay. Ichthyophis lays eggs, so I would be curious to see eggs. <laughs> you would, yeah, you would want to see the eggs. Okay, cool. Yeah. Okay, uh, well, since we're talking about um, Sicilians, I actually have a few questions on them in here. Um, well, first of all, why don't we ever hear about them? So you're saying they're very uh, elusive. Uh, why yeah. is that? Yeah. So I think. Um, I think a number of factors. I mean, like they're fossorial, so they're primarily living underground. Even the most primitive members of the group are, you know, leaf litter burrowers. Um, okay. So they are hard to find. There is there has been a dedicated research group in London who's gone out into the field and had success collecting them. And it's literally okay. like digging up, you know, fields uh, da daily is all you do Just to find one. Yeah. So it's it's a lot of work. Um, so, yeah, I think basically just because they've been so cryptic historically, uh, there's not been a lot of interest in trying to, you know, it just seems like not a fruitful avenue of research. Of research, <laughs> like, looking for them. To look for them, there's, you know, comparatively like very few species known as a result. And is that real or an artifact? We're not sure. A lot of them right. live in difficult to get to places. There's pan-tropical, but, you know, through the center of, of Africa has been sort of historically, politically tough to get in to do field work. Um, so I think there's just, yeah, logistically challenging. Uh, and as a result, they have sort of stayed off the radar for most people. And we find different ways to answer questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. I when, when you talk to even amphibian keepers in the hobby, you you hear them talking about frogs and, and salamanders and, and all those, which you've never, I've, I've never heard anyone say, I didn't know what Sicilians were until I met you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, exactly. I didn't learn about them until university either. And then as well, you know, I've had them as pets. And basically, like, you just own a tank of dirt. Yeah, 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 you don't even so, see them. Like. So you don't see them. I mean, Tiflonectes, the aquatic ones, they swim around. You can interact with them and, and enjoy them. But other than just like for the joy of like caring for this animal, you don't get much. You don't, see it. You don't get that much out of it. Yeah. 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 So. so when you were feeding them, would you like throw in food that would burrow as well and hope they would find it under the soil? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty like, much. Uh, <laughs> I was, I, I tried to condition mine because I was curious if it was how hard or easy it was to move in the substrate I provided for it. Like, we we're just kind of like winging it. Like, I just gave them like right. a mixture of soil and like coconut fiber to kind of, but I didn't know how easy or hard it was for them to move in that versus the prey item. So I just kept like um, a compost of worms at home and I would just okay. bring in like earthworms every few days and just drop them in the same spot. And the Sicilian stayed alive for years and the worms disappeared. Okay. So presumably like it was working. <laughs> it yeah. Was working. Yeah. That's awesome. And then you dig to the bottom, you find the whole world colony and the Sicilian okay. just living with them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. We, we dig them up every few months or so just to make sure he's okay. And yeah, he's right. like, yeah, I'm cool. <laughs> and then like, how, how long do they get? Like, are they tiny yeah. as well or do they get pretty pretty long no depends on the species as well so okay. like there are miniature species that i don't think would get much longer than 10 15 centimeters but there are species in south america that can get to over a meter in length wow yeah so they wow. can be and, quite and, big and they still exist they yes. haven't yeah wow okay yeah. that's yeah. very cool yeah. 
Yeah, the ones like ichthyophis, probably, you know, like maybe 40, 50, 60 centimeters. Um, Dermophis, some of the common ones on the pet trade will, won't get terribly large, maybe a foot or two feet length total. But yeah, there's some big boys out there. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if they get sold in the pet trade as Sicilians or if they get sold as other species, like maybe small snakes without people knowing what they are. Or Yeah, I've seen. So because of the rules of exportation from places like Brazil, um, they okay. get smuggled out i would say or they get taken out by being under the name of fish rubber eels um, oh interesting yeah so and that works for the aquatic ones yeah 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 okay i okay I that's very it. interesting yeah, that's that's i guess that's also an easier way to find them we could try to look for rubber eels and see if they i guess Maybe. yeah totally that's how they'll be labeled on tanks and fish store or yeah exactly yeah. Like that too. yeah and you're like wait a, you're not a fish at all <laughs> <laughs> i'm wondering if yeah that, that's very interesting i may maybe have even seen them then in the past and, and just been Possibly. like yeah fish and then just mm -hmm. walk away okay very interesting and then um so do we know where they um uh, kind of fit on the historic timeline because they look very <laughs> prehistoric but i guess because we don't see them we don't know the research as well yeah exactly which is why i you know i I, spent, I did my PhD work on them. Like, uh, the entire, oh, my entire thesis was was on Sicilians trying to figure out what in the actual heck are they? Like, because okay. yeah, the fossil record of them is very, very poor. Like all of the fossils known could probably fit in my hand or maybe two hands um, for wow. Sicilians. So, um, and they have a very unusual morphology today. Like the modern ones are really different from anything that looks like anything in the past. So we're basically trying to connect something that occurred the oldest sicilian fossil that we think is definitively a sicilian is you know from the the jurassic and then the gap to where it may have branched off from goes back to the the permian or maybe even late carboniferous wow. so there's a so huge we, huge gap nothing in the middle no. but there <laughs> no. must have been something there must have been something there but you know something. were they living underground as well and hence like did not get preserved well living in tropical warm regions where things decompose quickly they're very small um, all these factors probably lead to them not having a fossil record. And so absolutely, as a result, there is a lot of debate amongst paleontologists about where they actually fit in the family tree. Are they closest relatives to frogs and salamanders? Or are they derived from a completely different group of fossils? Or different parts of the same sort of broader family tree of where frogs and salamanders fit? Um, we're still, literally, I'm still working on this today like yesterday my project was <laughs> was trying to reanalyze some data and try to figure out a more robust idea for where they belong <laughs> interesting and then so you, you said your thesis was what are they did you come to a sort of a conclusion or an assumption i did at the time yep so i you know i i gathered a whole bunch of new ct data new morphological data of the the in, inside of the skull the brain case bones um, and reanalyzed new characters uh, from that anatomy. And my hypothesis that emerged was the same as what a few other people were sort of leaning towards thinking and sort of building on a common story. However, you know, since then, when that was back in, you know, like 2010, 20, 2009, um, new fossils have come to light that have sort of shaken that up again. So we're back to reanalyze. square one. <laughs> yeah. So... It's uh, part of science. Crazy. Absolutely, that, yeah. We, you yeah. know, every new piece of data changes our 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 vision a little bit, and it's okay. For sure. So, are even like when you go out to like um, Nova Scotia or or some other field sites at this point, do you find it harder now to find fossils than you did a few years ago? Like, do you feel like 
um, maybe the areas have already been discovered. So now you look, need to look in different directions or? No, not at all. The way, the rate of erosion of those cliffs is high okay. enough that any given year we have wow. an equal or better chance of finding something than the year before. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's very cool. So yeah. it's the erosion of the cliffs that yeah. kind of reveals it. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I yeah. Okay. Very cool. Okay. Yeah. And then, um, can we talk a little bit more about axolotls? Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. <laughs> so is um, how, so everybody, even people who don't know what axolotls are, probably know that axolotls can regenerate certain limbs mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or most of their limbs, I believe. Yep. Um, and I've even seen gills as well, right? So oh, yeah. how, how is this possible or why <laughs> is this possible? Or if, if, there is a, yeah. if there is a simple answer for that. Um, there, there probably is, if I were a regenerative biology scientist, but, okay, I, okay. but I don't know. Okay. So, so I know axolotl can regenerate parts of their heart, their jaws, wow. parts of their brain. Like the, their capacity is like, is unparalleled, right? So there's, we've so never there's seen no, anything like this. It's not just the limbs and the fingers and it's, no, you're saying hearts and jaws. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you say there's no other species that can do as much as. Wow, as far okay. as we know no yeah exactly so other salamanders you know other newts can regenerate little bits and pieces of themselves frogs a little bit um and then also often that's usually the higher capacity to regenerate is earlier in their lives like if you know as tadpoles they can regenerate parts right. that maybe they can't as an adult um right. i i don't i mean i'm at risk of like totally like making this wrong my understanding as far as i can <laughs> tell is that you know Salamanders, well, axolotls seem to have this ability to de-differentiate like wound cells back into okay. stem cells such that they can then basically re-transform what was sort of that wound site where you had already, you know, injured bone and muscle. They basically re-encapsulate that, de-differentiate those cells back into stem cells so that they can then regrow and be fated to become. Um, and so that's exactly the mystery of what their you know regenerative scientists are trying to figure out what is in what is involved in that process that we are lacking as that, yeah that why what allows them to do it yeah 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 so i think we're very, not very quite cool. fully understood in what those mechanisms are exactly and then how they relate to what we possess and don't possess but that's basically where that research is going i mean obviously if it's a matter of just like giving us a shot of some gene product that allows us to de-differentiate cells then yeah you know, yeah we're they're trying to figure that out um yeah it would be good yeah. for for um for injuries or, or something later on down the road but Hugely, we'll yeah. leave that to the uh, regenerative or regenerative, exactly. whatever you call them yeah. <laughs> um okay cool and then is with with the uh what you guys call the gfp mm -hmm. uh, gene and would that also be something that they they kind of do research on or is that more um yeah no so that so the gfp um is uh is, is more like all, a, what does it stand for <laughs> yeah it's a tool so it's the green fluorescent protein um, okay. transgenic of um of axolotl so what what they've done what um what the basically the scientists have done is taken a jellyfish fluorescent gene and inserted it into the genome of axolotl right behind uh, a part of a of a gene sequence, the enhancer that basically is expressed to uh, to sort of guide a, a, a gene that's expressed in every cell. 
Um, okay. So one of these sort of like housekeeping genes. Again, I don't know all the details yeah. of the mechanics of this, but basically sure. what it means is that in order for that normal gene to be expressed in axolotl, the GFP has to be expressed before it, and then it continues on its way. So it basically, all those cells then produce this green fluorescent protein that then floats around inside the cell. It's harmless. It does nothing. It doesn't affect the function, but when you shine UV light on it, it glows. And so we basically have this, this, any of these types of transgenics uh, are basically just tools for us to further understand something else about the animal. So what we use them for is for understanding what parts of the embryo give rise to what parts of the adult. And so we can actually graft pieces of the GFP positive, um, sort of a donor embryo cells into a, a normal background wild type embryo and grow it up and basically see whatever parts of that larva or juvenile salamander glow green, we know that that must have come from that part of the embryo. That's very interesting. That's very, very interesting. So, so when, yeah, when we start manipulating the genetics, we can see specifically what, ha you know, what parts of the embryo's fate did we change. <laughs> and whether it's working or not, right? Exactly. Like if you don't you see confirm. the, exactly. if you don't yeah. see the green glow, it, it didn't work. That's very interesting. Yeah. And then is this a breathable trait? Cause I like right now they're, they're in the, the pet trade as well. Yeah. So yeah. I guess maybe somebody um, bred a, an axolotl that was injected to a regular one. And now they're just, They've continued. Yeah, yeah. So the way the the way they were constructed was that that the sequence to create the protein, the GFP protein, was inserted into the genome of you know an original axolotl, uh, probably a few. And so it's like a part of their genome now. It's in there, okay. and so every time you breed them, um, it's going to be passed on to offspring. Um, the way I think Very it fun. got sort of put in, at least at one facility, the way they put it in is that if you were to breed. Uh, I think it's sex linked. So if you were to breed a GFP and a, and a leucistic, only half the embryos would be fluorescent GFP. and half would be, yeah. So that's actually helpful for, for our work because we, we need sort of synchronous donor and host embryos. So we right. can make pieces between them. Instead of having like trying to coordinate two sets of breeding, we can do one breeding, get embryos that are GFP and non-GFP and um, do our experiments that way. So yeah, it's, it's, it's in the genome. Anyone could breed two GFPs, get GFP babies. Yeah. <laughs> so. Very interesting. And is this, is this in other, um, have they done this in other amphibians or is this only in? Yeah. I, so I have GFP, my Xenopus, half of them are GFP. You just can't see it because their skin is so pigmented. Um, right. So it's not as obvious as obviously, you know, you can see in, a, in an albino axolotl. or a leucistic axolotl. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there's GFP mice, chickens, uh, rabbits, pigs. Chickens. Oh yeah. Yeah. Any how, how do they see it in chickens? Uh, under a UV light, you can you can excite it as well. You, it's, you can see it in rabbits, cats. They've genetically uh, modified all these species for research to have this tool available. Yeah. <laughs> very very cool. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, I yeah I'm I'm sure like I did know that it existed and I've obviously seen it before in your lab, but yeah. I didn't know there wasn't that many animals and that it was. Um, I, I don't know why I assumed at some point it might have been like a a natural genome that popped up like in jellyfish and then somebody had taken right. that and kind of separated it but i guess no it's, yeah uh, well because that's the story with the albino axolotls right like that was just sort of a fluke occurrence in the wild and they collected them and have bred every subsequent ax albino axolotl out of like the same seven or something yeah so. it's the same thing with the leucistic um spanish rib newts there was just uh, one breeder who got like a, a one batch with like three or four of them and now every single yeah. one is uh from the same which 
also questions, I guess, inbreeding and how <laughs> yeah. healthy they are down the road. But yeah, uh, totally. Awesome. And then so I guess I have a few questions here about like amphibians first starting out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I feel like you kind of already um, busted these myths for us. So amphibians weren't the first animals to walk on land, right? No. No. What would have came before them? Well, I mean, we're when we're in Nova Scotia um, and as well in neighboring New Brunswick, we're seeing some of the first terrestrial, like fully terrestrial vertebrates. And so these are these earliest amphibians, earliest amniote-like, reptile-like creatures. Um, then they're 320, 330 million years old. Then there's trackways that are even older than that. So 380 million year old trackways that we just don't trackways, have body fossils, like- as in like footprints. Footprints. Okay. Wow. So we can okay. see their footprints. There was animals on land, but often where we see where we get footprints preserved, we don't always have conditions that preserve body fossils. So we just don't right. see the actual animal fossils, but we have evidence that they were walking on land like a modern uh, amphibian or reptile. Four legs as well. Like four legs as well. Yeah. Most five digits, five fingers, five toes. The earliest sort of limb vertebrates had more toes and fingers than 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 that, but you know the first really definitively uh, terrestrial animals had, you know, limbs just like ours. Yeah, that's very interesting. And then what's the relationship with the limbs? So uh, uh, I mm-hmm. I know I've seen a lot, like uh, you do research on like the number of digits between um, this like what the the final project was, but like um, oh, what's yeah. the relationship of having let's say this species having three and then that species having four digits. Like how do you kind of link that? That's the yeah. common ancestor. Like does that, right. does that question make sense? <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I think it makes sense because, okay. So I think what we're, you know, when we look at the fossil record, pretty much, you know, the, the vast majority of, of animals have five digits on their f- hands and feet. So that sort of like is the most common condition for, you know, these early, earliest terrestrial vertebrates. Um, It's, you know, not until animals start experimenting with different ways of living, like um, being more eel-like or, you know, for for burrowing or for uh, becoming secondarily aquatic, where we see limbs starting to be reduced again. And often in those cases, that's where we start to see digits dropping um, off the animal. So, I mean, salamanders, a lot of them have lost um, at least one digit or two on the hand. Um, and a lot of three-toed salamanders, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, and, and those are just sort of unique occurrences within those lineages for whatever reason they were adaptive or not maladaptive. So whatever happened, they're just... Um, just so like either there. they needed them to be three or they didn't see a use for having the five, Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's... Or maybe, yeah, they might be in the middle of transitioning to like losing their forelimbs altogether Lose, or, altogether. you know, losing a, a okay. limb altogether, which is what we see in a lot of squamates that are limbless, secondarily limbless. You know, we see yeah. sort of transitional forms in between, which is what we were sort of trying to figure out with, with your project. Like how common is that? Uh, what are the patterns of, of limb loss and digit reduction and whatnot throughout that group? Right. So when you, for example, see like a, a ball python with like the one digit, they have like, so would that be considered like the lo- the through the process of losing the the digits? Yeah. Or- yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And then, um, 
So, so we already discussed the that the Chinese giant salamanders weren't the the oldest. Do we know what the oldest currently existing amphibian is? Oh, like when it appeared in identifiable form in the fossil record? Yeah. 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 I'm not too sure because they don't work on many of the young ones. Like, I mean, I, I consider like right, Cretaceous aged amphibians to be young, like, like right. only 65 million years. Or it's like 80 million. But I, I not old I, enough. Not old enough, no. But I, I feel like a lot of um, recognizable crown group, um, at least families that have living members in them today, appeared at, at least, you know, in, in parts of the Cretaceous, you know, the probably some amphibian biologists are freaking out at me saying that but my understanding is a lot of groups had started to originate by at least the cretaceous and then um yeah maybe a bit earlier or, or or later i'm not too sure yeah okay um in that case what are some of the species like the the, the old ones that you are kind of finding in the fossil record mm -hmm. and then maybe i can throw up a picture on the screen <laughs> right uh... like there's one I seen one that a lot of people, a lot of people on campus always have on their shirt. Uh, oh, and it has like a triangle head, maybe. Yeah, uh, Diplocolis. Yeah. So, but yeah. that's not what you you work on, though. I would love to. I just that's a whole other group of animals that I haven't even gotten into. Okay. Yeah, those are members of like Nectridia, um, okay. a group of currently thought of Lepospondyl, Temnospondyl, or uh, uh, tetrapods. But uh, I primarily work in another group of fossils, the Temnospondyls. Um, but you know, again, there's arguments. Maybe they belong over another part of the tree. They're just another weird group of amphibians that we don't know much about. They have no living descendants, right. as far as we can tell. Mm -hmm. So just they went completely extinct uh, in the Permian, probably. What is the word you you just used? Tess. Um... Oh, like Temnospondyls. Yes. What is that? Yeah, mean? <laughs> so that's, that's a name for a group of of tetrapods that includes. Uh, most if not all of the modern amphibians at least you know it's our kind of our the strongest um hypothesis at the moment is that all frogs salamanders and, Sil and sicilians came from that fossil lineage okay very yeah. cool and then other things would have come from the other the some other things yeah stemmed out of the lepospondyl group lepospondyl. Okay, lepospondyls was, yeah. are more closely related to amniotes so they're just right outside of the amniote group um, but okay. again, if 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 no amphibians are descendants of lepospondyls, that entire clade went extinct as well. So we have no living descendants of that group. Oh, uh, at all? No. Very. So it's kind of sad. You're like, oh, yeah, sometimes yeah. I wish, like we had. Sometimes I wish some of the amphibians were were lepospondyls, so that we didn't lose like an entire clade of entire clade, yeah, <laughs> of diversity. But you know, it it is what it is. I guess probably end Permian extinction was the big the big bottleneck that's when uh, a lot of them uh, a lot of the species got uh we lost a lot of amphibian species we did yeah and the leospondyls yeah. yeah okay yeah a lot of the leospondyls disappeared yeah very cool i okay i i think that's about all the questions i had to ask you but <laughs> okay. i do want to ask you uh about mud puppies before oh um, yeah oh i do have one more question but mud puppies first okay. um okay. what what um why are they so hard to find? And then why? what makes them, like, I know a lot of groups are doing research on them. So why are they so important for research? Is it solely because they're so endangered at the moment that they're kind of doing uh, environmental, like, uh, research on it? Or is there mm -hmm. kind of like a historic significance to the research on them? Oh, I don't. 
don't I'm not too familiar with too much research happening on them right now. Okay. Um, I feel like I mean, so historically they were um, a lot of bycatch in like the Great Lakes and things like right. that, which I think made them good models for teaching anatomy in schools, okay. right? Like we dissected. They were there, right. We dissected my puppies. Um, right. And I think just, yeah, with the sort of like crashing ecosystems around the whole Great Lakes region, I think they've become threatened as well as because of the, probably because of this over harvesting maybe too um i don't know too much about their their sort of modern their current status i i think though that's sort of my understanding is what some of the main um drivers of why they are pretty rare and hard to find um i think they're fussy animals to keep in the lab if you we were to try to you know we did you come out when did we see them we never we saw didn't see any. them when I went okay. out. No, yeah. Okay, yeah. but you saw like their habitat, right? I it's did. Like... So it's very fast flowing water, and exactly. that's so that was that was actually another question. So, uh, so a lot of the salamanders and like the newts and I guess the the aquatic ones. So the newts and 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 I saw they all seem to stay in very calm, slow water, and I think that's right. more to do with like the way they swim and the way they move. Yeah. But mud puppies were in super fast water, like that was like a a waterfall. So yeah, yeah. It, does that yeah i like, think is that's there... probably why it's hard to get them in the lab i mean i think they need like flowing water over Lots their gills water. like you know high oxygen environments um right. may maybe i honestly i i'm not even too sure i think they're just yeah. very cryptic i they seem to be very sensitive to environmental perturbation so they're not found everywhere they're only found in sort of these very unique kinds of places like the place that we go to near here um, yeah. it's the only kind of creek that has them like that, like nothing else around and the entire area. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, and whether that, you know, I think there's arguments about that is partly due to the fact that they built a little dam on that Creek and it actually moderated the environment. So they couldn't go farther up, you know, so they basically are sort okay. of trapped in this sort of trapped zone, there. um, where we can find them. But, um, yeah, I think they're just over harvested historically probably have, bad environmental conditions now and have never really been protected because they're pretty cryptic and yeah. um, so now i think are in bad shape yeah as as most most amphibians are pretty cryptic i think and which is why i, I find them so interesting i think it's the, the ability to survive in such weird places but still like not totally seen. so yeah. cool i mean these neotenic salamanders are so cool right like they they're doing something like nothing else does so. no other species yeah. can do yeah. yeah absolutely and they are completely like they never um uh, there's no they are like axolotls they never their entire life stage do they have a larva stage no i know i mean like they're they're larval in that they're just smaller versions of themselves of themselves okay. um you know there is a metamorphosis that happens you know their blood will metamorphose like axolotl and parts of their tissues metamorphose but you don't okay. see that in their external features they will maintain those okay. larval external features yeah axolotl's bloods metamorphose so i think there's like the, there's blood cells that metamorphose and change like there's there's weird things that happen to the different tissues that are like cryptic to our eyes so that we can't tell that they are actually mature um visually they just but yeah there is sort of like a, a very cryptic metamorphosis that does still happen in a sense see the more you talk about amphibians the cooler they get like, I ex <laughs> that's exactly really cool. yeah yeah. Awesome. Okay. And then finally, my last question, and it's the most important question of all. Um, 
what is your personal favorite of Vivian? Oh. <laughs> I know it's a tough one, but it's tough. I mean, I think like obviously things that come to mind are like glass frogs. I think they're so cute. I mean, it's probably yeah. going to be a frog of some sort. I just their eyeballs. Okay. I just can't handle how cute so, their eyeballs so are. So frogs, not the salamanders or the Sicilians. Yeah, I, I mean, well, if well, I, were I will leave it at we. Yeah, if I were to choose one to live with for the rest of my life, I think I would probably be a frog. I think okay, they're sweet. just super cute. Yeah. I, I, yes, as a dart frog keeper, I have to agree. <laughs> so cute. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're very, very cute. And, and, and they, the hops too, right? <laughs> oh, and when they like, when the ones that crawl, like the little like toads, the little mini toads. Oh, man. Yeah. Yes. No, agreed. Absolutely. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So that was everything I had written down. I, I kind of wish I had I had more written down, but because uh, it was oh, so sorry. interesting. But anyway, <laughs> we're 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 already at, at where I usually like to keep it around forty five. So cool. So that's perfect. Um, thank you very much for coming on. I'm super excited to post this episode. Um, <laughs> no problem. I'm like, oh man, I like. Awesome. And then, um, so I usually tell people to like say where people can find them at the end of the episode. So are you on any social media that you want people to maybe keep up with you on or? um yeah i guess on twitter like i mean that's where i kind of post most of the research stuff is yeah i can find me at evo diva (laughs) evo diva awesome yes i love that okay i will also have it in the in the show notes uh okay as well perfect thank you very much once again all right no problemo (laughs) talk to you soon okay bye Awesome. Thank you very much once again to Dr. Hilary Madden for coming on the show. Um, that was very interesting. I learned, I mean, I've been uh, in and out of her lab for almost three years now learning and about, learning about amphibians, and I still feel like I learned so much on this episode. So hopefully you guys felt the same way. Um, so follow her on Evo Diva on uh, Twitter. Um, follow me on Daffy's Reptiles on Instagram, YouTube, everywhere else. And then uh, drop the show a like and a subscribe on whatever platform you used to listen to to podcasts. Thank you very much. And we'll see you on the next one.